Hi, thanks so much for tuning into the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast, where I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. I'm your host, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, and I'm really excited you're here. You're listening to episode number eight. In this episode, I get to talk with one of my very favorite humans, Jill Eisenhard, the founder and former executive director of the Red Hook Initiative here in Brooklyn. I wanted to talk with Jill for this Next Normal series in part because of two memories that I have of her. The first memory is of my first coffee date with Jill, which was the last day of my role as leader of the organization that I'd founded and led for 10 years. I showed up at the cafe to meet Jill carrying a huge cardboard box with the last photos and framed quotes and knickknacks from my desk in my office. And despite never having had coffee with me or really an extended conversation, she welcomed me, gave me a big hug, and we wound up sitting together for hours and going through my crazy box and talking about my first baby steps into my own next normal, my own journey into the sort of unknown abyss of what my professional world was going to look like following a decade of leadership. My other memory of Jill was from many years earlier in the months of 2012 and early 2013 following Hurricane Sandy, which just devastated huge swaths of New York City and hit Red Hook, where the Red Hook Initiative is located particularly hard. I remember attending a community meeting about how to work with city agencies to rebuild youth programs in communities that had been hit the hardest by the storm. And hearing Jill give a talk about the importance of community-based leadership and the importance of community collaboration as a way through the pain and destruction caused by the hurricane. I was struck then and now by her expansive sense of leadership and by the deeply strategic lens that she applied to thinking about how to co-create the next normal for the residents of Red Hook. Both of these memories are why I loved this conversation with Jill so much. Jill and I have a really honest talk about what we hope is a more expansive concept of leadership that is evolving into the next normal. One that is more open and more welcoming of different styles and forms and modes of leadership. And that will ultimately, hopefully be more sustainable for the people that choose to step into leadership roles and engage in the practice of leadership. And we talk about how we are starting to see what we hope are baby steps into a more equitable next normal for the sector and for the city as a whole. This episode is the last in my video series, The Next Normal, which explores issues of strategy, sustainable leadership, and racial equity in the nonprofit sector and in the world at large that are following the tectonic unrest of 2020. Let's take a listen. Hi, Jill. How are you? Good. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm really excited to be here with you, too. I always love talking to you, and I've wanted to have this particular conversation with you for a while, so welcome. I thought I would start out with a big picture question. As you know, I've been having these next normal conversations 
just with people that I love to talk to (laughs) that I think are doing awesome work in the world. And I really love your perspective on this whole idea of the next normal. I mean, at this point, it's become perhaps a little bit trite, but it still resonates with me. There's some new world that we are creating in the nonprofit sector. What do you think it's going to look like? Yeah, it's a really exciting question. And I've been having that conversation with a lot of people also. I think the conversations that we have every day, people keep talking about, well, when COVID is over, when we go back to normal, and then I think people pause and they say, well, the new normal. So people, I think, you know, no matter what their industry or age or stage of life are recognizing that this is a marker in a moment when things are going to change. And so I feel like everyone's kind of asking that, what is the new normal or what is the return to life going to look like? And in the nonprofit sector, I think there have been a bunch of things that have just come out in the last year and since between everything that's just happened in 2020. And so I am really just wondering what work is going to look like. And I'm talking to people about jobs and commuting. And I think one big shift that I am predicting that we'll see is people realizing that you can be a productive worker and a member of a team and not have to physically be in the same space from nine to five, Monday to Friday. And so I think that that will open up a lot of possibilities for people and careers and where they can work and what they could be working on in a way that might not have been possible or really imagined before. And I think that that also, that shift in mentality of thinking someone doesn't have to be sitting at a desk in a building with the sign outside will also shift people away from a typical, I have a full-time job and I'm employed by this organization, institution, school, whatever it is, and will allow people to think more about, instead of this is my title of my job at my workplace, this is the kind of work that I do in the world. And maybe I do that at two or three different places. Because I think that people can really have the space to envision how they want their work to show up and what that might look like for them. And it doesn't have to necessarily be tied to one specific institution. So that's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One, because for most of the time that you and I have been friends, you were the executive director of an organization that is community-based, right? And so a big part of, I would imagine, sort of showing up for the community involved being physically present in the space that you and your team created in Red Hook. And so now as we reimagine what physical presence and physical spaces mean in nonprofit work and social justice work and social impact work, I'm going to ask two questions. (laughs) I wonder what your thinking is around the implications for that for community-based or sort of space-based work. And then I also, just wearing my own used-to-be-an-executive-director hat, I think it's really exciting, this vision of people's roles and work not being necessarily tied to a title right, or one organization. But my second question is, I wonder what that means for people who run institutions and how you think about the stability of your workforce or the stability of your team or the level of investment that you get from a person who is a director of programs full-time 50 hours a week for my organization versus sort of splitting 
energy and time across different places? So those are two really big questions. <laughs> yeah, they are. I think that there will still be a need for that, right? The person that you could walk into a nonprofit organization, no matter what day of the week, that person is going to be there, right? To kind of be the consistent presence. But I think that there's just also space for more people to have mobility and move through space and have different kinds of relationships. And in many ways, I think part of what has happened during the pandemic is that because people stopped getting on a subway to commute halfway across a city or to drive the next town over to get to their job is that people have formed a new local relationship to their immediate surroundings. And so I think when you think about place-based organizations like we had in Red Hook, I think in some ways people have started to say, oh, I'm now closer to home. I'm more local. I maybe have more time to wonder what happens in this building that's a few blocks away from me or to get involved in something because I'm not spending 10 hours a week commuting. And so I think in some ways it has actually strengthened community-based or place-based organizations because people are more focused and have been staying closer to home. And I think that some of that will probably still stay and people won't forget like, oh, I actually have a new relationship with the neighborhood where I sleep. It's not just the neighborhood where I go to work that I know all the places to get coffee or have lunch. And I think on the other side of that, it's just thinking about as an executive director or someone leading an organization, really being clear and thinking about job descriptions or what's the expertise that is needed. Yeah. And thinking about less is how do I put all the things that are needed into one role? And what does that title look like? And thinking more like, is this a short-term job? Like, do we need someone to do something for three months to get it started. And that person who gets it started might not be the same person who's going to run it for the next two or three years. That might be a different skill set or a different person. And so I just think I'm hoping that this pause and kind of reset to a new normal will allow people to think differently about how things get filed into jobs or job descriptions or what's being asked of people and of teams and thinking through how do you break down some of those barriers of oh, I have this title, so I don't do that work. One of the things that I saw over many years is that when someone's really good at their job, they start to get promoted, right? And it's like, oh, you're a really great social worker. And so now you get paid more money, maybe you add senior to your title, but eventually you hit a ceiling where if you want to continue to grow, there's an assumed increased responsibility that leads to being a supervisor or developing programs. But maybe the person was just a really incredible, amazing social worker and is not a great supervisor and was never meant to be a supervisor. And so I would really love the next normal to be able to think about how can people grow in seniority and in job title and in pay and stay close and connected to the thing that they're really good at. And how can there be more space for that as opposed to like, oh, the only way that you can grow is to suddenly stop doing the thing that you love and you're good at and to start leading or being in a different way. Do you think that applies to executive directors also? I mean, I think one of the things that I've thought a lot about since stepping down from that role in my own life is how much is packed into that role, right? How much is expected of, for most organizations, a single person, a single executive director. And I talk with a lot of EDs who are really amazing in 
one, two, three of the seven things that EDs have to be really great at, but not only aren't great at some of the other things, but feel guilty about that, right? Don't want to spend their energy becoming a finance whiz, (laughs) but that is expected of them, right? And often even how successful they are is defined in part by their ability to learn and get great at things maybe they were never intended to learn or get great at. So how might that expansiveness apply to people in leadership roles also? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, for a while now, have really been thinking about executive director roles and job descriptions and what is expected and how much executive directors hold. I mean, I have never had a conversation with an executive director who wasn't working every single night and every weekend and was always really, really, really worried about some aspect or usually multiple aspects of the work. And just thinking about how is that sustainable? How do you have it so that I know so many executive directors who've left and they're not saying, oh, I wonder where I'll be an executive director again. They're all saying never again, never again will I ever do that. And so in thinking about that and in thinking about the question that you asked about different people have different strengths and things that they're good at, I would really love to see more organizations and institutions exploring a model of co-executive directors. How can you have somebody who loves people and programs and really being an external voice partnered with a co-executive director who loves the finance and the detail and the policy and the behind the scenes not so visible, but equally important work. And what amazing things could happen with that shared responsibility. And could an executive director actually take a vacation and not check their email if they had a co-person who was like holding it down for the week or two weeks. And so I think that, again, going back to thinking about what are people good at, I ran the Red Hook Initiative for almost 19 years. And at year 17, I still had my hand in running a program, but I made sure that no one, I'm like, don't tell anyone that I'm doing this. And it was the thing that I loved and I wanted to be in a room with young people and putting ideas on the wall on chart paper. But I made sure that (laughs) hardly anyone knew that that was happening because it wasn't what I was supposed to do, but it was what I loved. And I felt like I constantly paid the price for that, right? It was like, oh, I took these two hours to like run a group and be connected to the work, but it's not really what my job was. And therefore, like there are all these other things. And so I think just to go back to think about people's strengths and what they're good at, how do we create space where people could say, yes, I am an executive director and I also happen to run a program because that's what like has meaning to me or... I'm an executive director and I have a background in social work and I still carry two clients on a caseload to keep me connected to the work in that matters. And I'm sure you could talk to lots of executive directors who might say like, no, no, I'm fine leaving those things behind. But I also know that that passion for the work sometimes gets buried. And I often felt like, oh, I'm watching other people do the fun parts. Well, I have to do the parts that are necessary to keep the doors open. So do you think that your thinking about this has been shaped? Well, let me actually back up and ask this a different way. You stepped down as executive director a little while ago. And I'm wondering if some of these insights sort of came to you while you were in the role, or if you've benefited from sort of (laughs) the distance, the time, the ability to actually sleep at night, all of the things that come when we leave the role of executive director. Just more broadly, how do you feel like your perspective on things like 
sustainable leadership (laughs) has changed since stepping out of that role? Yeah, I don't think that I would have said that so concretely when I was still in it. I think it did require some space and the moments of thinking back and reflecting and just wondering, like, how did I possibly do that for so long? Part of my own transition process was just talking to lots and lots of founders who had left and executive directors who had transitioned and just asking them what worked well for you, what didn't, like, have you onboard and set a new leader up for success? And so many times in onboarding of my replacement, I felt like I was apologizing, not for anything particular to our organization, but for how the industry (laughs) is set up. And she would ask a question and I'd be like, well, that's just kind of how it is everywhere, right? And then feeling bad about them. Like, I'm sorry that it's like that. Or I'm sorry that like, yeah, in order to do your job, you do have to open your computer every night, right? And feeling like, but maybe if you do it better or you find the right thing, you'll find a way to not do that knowing that every other executive director who I know also does that, right? And so I think having that space and distance and watching someone else very closely stepping into that and realizing, oh, this is a lot more than it was advertised to be and very willingly saying, I'm going to do this. But I think I just have been thinking a lot about sustainability. And I've started working with some, a few people who are founding or thinking of starting organizations. And from the beginning, I feel like with some people who don't even yet have a 501c3, some of the advice that I'm offering is don't set it up this way or think about how to not be relying 100% on donations? Is there an earned income aspect of your model that you can build? And really thinking about all the things that make it so difficult and challenging in the areas where I think the nonprofit sector is broken and start to think about how could that be re-envisioned or how do we set it up so the next generation of executive directors, when they leave, it's not saying never again, that they are saying, oh, what's the next organization where I want to go and use these muscles and the skills that I've developed? I think that's one of the most pernicious aspects of the role. You highlighted that little nagging voice that says, well, maybe somebody could do this better, right? Maybe the problem is not actually that the job as constructed is not sustainable or tenable. Maybe the problem is that I am not working hard enough. (laughs) I've started talking with a lot of the EDs that I work with about this whole, like, you hear work smarter, not harder. And that sounds really trite, but it actually may involve doing some of what you're saying, which is saying, okay, this is the part that I am not going to spend the extra 30 hours this week doing or learning. I'm going to find a partner. I'm going to find a team that can do this better. But I think even more deeply rooted is forgiving ourselves for even having that thought. And I was shocked by the number of conversations I've had over the last eight years with EDs where every single one of them at some point has said, well, if I were just better (laughs) at this job, then it wouldn't be so hard. There has to be something, even though I won't admit it to my board or my funders, there's something I'm doing. And so I love what you're saying the perspective I think you gain by not being in the 80-hour week that actually, no, there's a structural flaw, right? It isn't that we're doing something wrong. Absolutely. And I think for women leaders in particular, that it's even more tends to somehow be, I'm not 
good enough, smart enough, fast enough, right? I mean, for me, it was like, well, I don't have a master's degree. There must be something that I missed, right? But <laughs> not getting that, I mean, which now is hilarious. But for many years, I was like, oh, it's because I'm not educated enough that somehow this is hard for me. I mean, who knows the number of different <laughs> stories that I had over the years of like why I didn't think that it was working, but it was always blaming myself, right? That there's something that I'm doing that's wrong, not recognizing like, oh, in order to keep the doors open and running it's requiring all this that's way too much and I think also the not complaining right I think that people kind of suck it up and because there is a bit of self-doubt or thinking like oh it must be me there's less demanding of boards or of funders or of outside people saying like no you're asking to like this is not possible and I think that very much in the nonprofit sector it's not at all uncommon for executive directors to just have the mindset of like I just have to find a way to do this and it matters and the consequence of not finding a way is telling someone who really needs something that they can't have it that's not why I do this work and so I think that you just find people who will, yep, I'm going to stay up until three o'clock in the morning to write the grant because if I don't, then people won't have this thing that they need. And if I do, then maybe they will. Because we don't know for sure. I'll also do that same thing again tomorrow, right? <laughs> and so it's amazing that it's all of these incredible attributes. The thing is people who are dedicated and willing to kind of stop at nothing. And I will jump through all these hurdles to do the work that matters to my community or my population or whoever it is. And in so many ways, it's so selfless. And yet at the same time, like where is that leading to burnout or just people saying like, oh, I can't do this anymore, or I'm not as effective because I haven't been able to take an actual break or vacation or, or days off. I think another really interesting place that it shows up, and you and I have talked a little bit about this too, is there are definitely the sort of narratives that women leaders have. But I also find it interesting as we start to see more conversations taking place sector-wide about leadership transitions from very often founders who are white to next leaders who are not, that it's the women of color who take over from these sort of super women seeming white founders that all of a sudden are saying to their boards, but wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't sustainable, but wait a minute, a hundred hours a week is going to burn my team out. And rather than the response being, oh, you're right, everything you and I are talking about, there's a structural flaw. There's this sort of sub-narrative that's being developed or perpetuated that these women of color leaders just can't cut it, right? And that the structural flaw is with their leadership, that they don't bring the networks to bear and they don't have the management skills. And when in fact, they are sort of calling attention to a structural flaw that existed before. And I think as we start to see, or I wonder if we see more and more of a push for a leadership pipeline that does actually pass the torch to leaders of color, if this next normal will require that we have more honest conversations about the broader structural flaws so that it isn't about these sort of next generation leaders being the source of the problems. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that is so critical and thinking about how do we highlight and move all these pieces at the same time. So if we're talking about handing off 
like in my case, like an organization that was run by a white leader to a person of color, are we also talking about like the importance of general operating support for organizations for multi-year support and not just here's something for nine months, come back and we'll see how you're doing. Investing in capacity to build evaluation. And I, we at RHI had a long transition ramp. And I think from the time that I told my board I was leaving until actually leaving was almost two years. And so that's an unbelievable amount of time to prepare. And so some of the things that we, (laughs) there was also a pandemic. But I think just being able to say, we know that what's going to be asked of the next person, regardless of who it is, right, will be more and that all the statistics that exist around founders leaving. And so how do we start to prepare for that? How can we build a financial reserve? How do we start to really prime our donors and funders to talk about general operating support, multi-year support, and even a transition fund? We approached a lot of foundations just saying like transitions cost money to think that it's not going to, especially for anyone who's been there for any length of time. It just takes time. Like that would be the case anywhere. And so I think because there are so many executive transitions happening, I think there are more and more conversations in philanthropy as people are thinking about transitions and supporting a new emerging class of leaders and thinking about professional development and pathways, not just for executive directors, but at senior leadership positions for people of color. And I just am really encouraging wherever possible that people are not just looking at like, if there is no skills gap right? Like they don't need extra training because there's some deficiency there. Like a training (laughs) or a master's degree, which I didn't have, right? I mean, it's about like, let's look at the industry and all the things that are needed. Like, is there money for coaching? Is there money to bring in consultants to really like say there's all these various pieces of the work. And I hope that those conversations continue to evolve together and that they don't get separated because I can already see that happening where it's just the expectation of, oh, let's just do something to like broaden the recruitment pools so that we're recruiting more leaders of color. It's like, that's not the, I mean, yes, do that. But there are all these other pieces about how to make the work to add in all the pieces that are needed. So my last question you, it's sort of building on this perspective, having left the role of executive director What advice do you have for leaders that are still executive directors, that are still sort of stewarding the missions of their organizations as they move into the next normal? What's something that you think they should think about or take with them? I mean, I think that as in New York City in particular, I think looking at city funding and government funding and what's coming is pretty bleak. And thinking about all the needs that are emerging in the new normal and whatever post-COVID-19, whenever that begins and whatever it's going to look like, right? There are so many needs and things that have been exposed that are going to need addressing. And I think a really important piece for executive directors is going to be how can we also use this moment as the government and philanthropy looks to nonprofits to solve all the problems that were there before that are maybe worse or that are there before and now everyone is suddenly aware of? Not to just say, oh, let's put out an RFP for someone to deal with the emerging food crisis or 
job training that needs to happen to rebuild our city or rebuild neighborhoods, but to actually say, how do we invest in that long-term? And for the executive directors to be able to say, let's talk about what it's really going to cost for organizations to step in to respond to needs in the new normal. Because a $25,000 grant or a government contract that is asking for twice as much, but has been cut by 25 to 30% because of tax dollars and available budgets, we can't continue to solve all the problems. This requires an investment. You would never ask a for-profit company to respond to a bigger emerging need or crisis on something that's inadequate of like, here's a little bit, see what you can do and like work some miracles. And so I think I'm really hoping that executive directors are able to feel like they can ask for what's needed and be able to have real conversations about what it's going to cost to make change and impact change and what they're promising or what's being asked to be able to talk about the real costs of the work. Well, as always, I love talking to you. You're always just so thoughtful and just really, really great being able to have this conversation with you. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me this week for this great conversation with Jill. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends. You can check out the Next Normal video series at richiebabbage.com backslash nextnormal. That's all for now. Have a great week and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.